everyone, and welcome to the Just Dow It podcast, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm your host. I'm the CEO of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And prior to starting MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. Welcome, Rotorless. Uh, would you please give a brief introduction to yourself and tell us what makes you an authority on DAOs? Sure. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm, most people know me as Rotorless in the Web3 space. My name's Eric. I'm a lawyer from Canada. Um, I've been involved in crypto for several years. It's my only area of practice, and I've been involved in DAOs specifically. Several of them as a contributor and a core core member, um, including Bankless DAO, Moon DAO, Shapeshift, and now Lido. So, you know, DAOs uh, second nature. That's awesome. I met Eric at uh, DAO Denver back in February when we were launching my DAO. And at the time, if you asked most lawyers if they could help you with a DAO, they either said no, or what are you talking about? Or that's impossible. But then when I asked Eric, he said, oh, yeah, I'm a DAO lawyer. I can help you with that. Um, so he's the first person I know who said that. And now there are a lot of people who would probably say, yes, they're DAO lawyers because it's such a great opportunity and so much interesting stuff happening. Um, but uh, that was an exciting, uh, exciting news when I first met you, Eric. All right. So the first half of the podcast, as always, will be the Just Dow It News Report, where we will go through recent news, summarize the stories, and then I will uh, share my hot takes and ask Eric for his. And we'll try to share especially our thoughts on what's relevant about these stories for people starting DAOs. After the news report, we will turn to the featured guest interview with Eric. First story in the news report today is from Forefront, which is at forefront.market. And the headline is an exploration of internet native organizations. So this is a really nice long article about internet native organizations. Really, it's talking about what most of us would call DAOs in most cases, but it does make the distinction that maybe there's a difference between what exactly is a DAO versus an organization that's internet native versus maybe a community. But all of these things that are being developed are similar in a lot of ways and that they're all uh, focused on the internet or run on the internet or digitally in some way. And this article talks about the origins of the digital community, experiences building internet native communities, and then what it calls the future history of DAOs, which explores you know, one vision for how DAOs will develop over the next uh, several years and then pretends to look back on that. And um, it's a really interesting article. There's a lot of mental models here for how to think about how DAOs work. Um, one of the really interesting ones is the following. It puts uh, these communities or DAOs on three uh, spectrums, spectra, I guess. Um, one of them is how do you bring in new members? Is it open or closed? And where on that spectrum are you? Another one is how does information or value get shared? And it ranges from chaotic to orderly on a spectrum. And then finally, how does formal rulemaking take place on a spectrum from fluid to rigid? So it's an interesting mental model that you can try to put your DAO on each of these three spectra and um, you know, use that as a way of thinking about I guess, where you want to be ideally and how those uh, three factors affect um, the nature of uh, people's experiences with your DAO. 
And then there is um, a number of other mental models in this article. So I definitely recommend uh, people checking it out. Um, I'll give you one more of the models, which is there's these three principles that are shared in this future history of DAOs that they see as kind of organizing principles for DAOs. The first one is community is the heart of the DAO. The second one is alignment is the lifeblood of community. And the third one is sense and respond is greater than command and control. And I especially like the third one. It reminds me of something we talked about when I was working at uh, Capital Group, which is a large investment management firm, you know, very much like corporate America, very successful 90-year-old company. And even there, this third principle was uh, pervasive in um, the conversation about how to turn a company from being more traditional, slower moving uh, into a, an organization that's able to innovate more and adapt more quickly. And a, a lot of it, even in a traditional company, was about allowing people to sense and respond rather than waiting for you know command and control from the top down. So I think certainly for our internet native communities, we should do the same. Eric, I know that was a lot, but anything there you want to react to or add to? This type of article is my favorite kind. It describes a phenomenon that I talk about, which is the asymmetry of information. So they talk about information as value and they talk about the trouble with scaling. And if you convert that into asymmetric information, it becomes how do you have symmetric information at scale? Right. How does everybody how do you receive the same value? And so this is a problem space and how will it evolve? But it kind of is plaguing everyone along all those spectrums it's ever present because it hasn't been resolved yet. And it's definitely going to be a technical fix. Yeah. Let's dig into this mental model. You shared a little bit more of uh, information symmetry versus asymmetry in DAOs. So I'm, I'm, I, the way I'm thinking about it is in a traditional corporation, like where I worked, a capital group, there's a lot of information asymmetry that tends to be top down in the sense that the people at the top have all the information, right? They, maybe not every detail, but at least at a high level, they're, they're getting fed information from everyone in the organization. So they're able to make decisions based on all that information. Whereas people at the edges of the organization just have access to a small amount of information about the business and the environment, et cetera. Versus in a DAO, I guess you, you almost certainly have more symmetry of information. And so you could distribute decision-making more is that kind of how you think about it or how would you apply this, the, the model that you're sharing? You're definitely in the right orbit, right? So the whole reason why uh, the corporate model has to be regulated is precisely because some people have all the, know all the know-how and all the insider information and everybody else is blind. And so information asymmetry is, uh, is part of that corporate model, right? It's just the way it is. And, through DAOs, there's an attempt at least, and but some of the struggles occur at the inflection point of scaling, right? So at what point is your pod too big, your work stream, where not everybody asynchronously can keep up to the information that they need to know? Because you don't need to know all the information, you just need to know the information that affects you, but it needs to be available and accessible. And that nut hasn't been cracked yet because I think that all the technology tools have been developed for corporate structures, right? So it was, so we haven't really, we're only seeing the beginning of the technical tools being developed for DAOs. They're only like really just coming out now in the first wave. Uh, the first tools are just tools from web two adapted for web three. 
Um, and now we're going to see tools by design. And I, I think as we see the design of these tools improve, most of it's going to be about flow of information. And when the flow of information is better, uh, moves away from the corporate model, uh, you're going to be able to see DAOs that scale better, right? So more people, you know, uh, more and more people uh, without needing a top level hierarchy rigid guidelines. Mm, interesting. Yeah, because that's something that today, I mean, I don't think any DAOs have really figured out how to scale the way traditional companies have, right? Like you have your um, Accenture's of the world with 200,000 employees or uh, something like that. You have, you know, big investment banks with thousands or tens of thousands. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I haven't seen any DAOs at that level of scale, at least in terms of contributors, but it, it sounds like the the vision, and I would agree with you if this is, is your vision, is that um, theoretically we should be able to achieve coordination at even greater scale with these new tools that we're building if we do it right. Yeah, and it should also turn to uh, efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So efficiency of outcomes. Uh, tremendously inefficient if you have a single blocker decision maker with his, their own incentives, like at the middle to high management in a large corporation, right? And very little actually occurs, right? It takes forever for a decision to happen, forever for implementation. And, part, and most of that has to do with the obscurity of uh, the non-transparency of it all, right? And the unavailability of information to circulate widely, right? So nobody knows why their deal was cut in half you know, the, the, the boss came in and made a deal with the other corporation and somebody's deal was cut in half. It's lauded as a success, but nobody knows what happened on the text of the golf course or whatnot, right? It's, it's all insider asymmetric information. Mm -hmm. And there's a strong argument to say that if that type of behavior didn't happen, those businesses and corporations would be more successful, not less. Doesn't the same incentive still exist in a DAO where, and maybe even with less checks on it, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but let's say I'm a contributor to a DAO with 100,000 people in it, and I am in a situation where I do have some information asymmetry, and I can use it to extract more value from the DAO than I would be able to if I shared that with everyone. What's to stop me from taking advantage of that? Um, in that circumstance, maybe even with fewer checks and balances than in a traditional company? Well, there may, may not be anything to stop you, but you would... Uh, DAOs are uh, often arranged along incentives. And so Web3 in the DAO community is all about realigning incentives, right? So realigning the incentive that made me pollute the world or realigning the incentive that made me discriminate against people, right? Of, of, for whatever reason, right? Realign. So all these things that we're trying to solve uh, through social um, pressures in, in the web two world, but we're not changing the incentives, right? So we're not removing the incentive to behave that way. So DAOs are, are, are to assert to, to more or less, I have yet to see one that's not about aligning incentives. It's not concerned with that. There's been a lot of this experimentation going on. But I think you'll find that, as you say, what's to stop someone? There's nothing to stop anyone because it's a volunteer space. But that would it occur more? Well, not if it was against the incentive. It's a, bit, it's a broad topic. I'll just say the, 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 the corporate model is developed in a certain way 
that there's a reason why like people higher up makes 10, 50, 60, 100, 300 times. It's not because they're, they're any better than anybody else. It's because the incentives have been aligned that way. DAOs seek to put incentives in, in different places mm, and, yep. uh, and hope to extract value that way. So I would just say that there's promise in that area. Yep, love it. Okay, awesome. Moving on to the next story is a tweet thread from Bankless Publishing on Twitter. You can follow them at Bankless Pub. And the, uh, the headline tweet is, DAOs need talent like every employer. As easy as folk can walk into a DAO, they can quickly leave. To make a DAO successful, it must worry about its stickiness to retain talent. Here are four stickiness factors a DAO needs, a thread. Okay, so 12 great tweets follow in terms of uh, sharing these four stickiness factors. So I'll just read them out. Um, the four stickiness factors are easy paths to contribution, earning and value exchange, proposal paths that meet community needs, and DAO impact, sustainability, and growth. Um, I'll dig into the first of these stickiness factors, the easy paths to contribution. Um, the the uh, next tweet breaks up this concept into two tips. One is providing self-help learning, and two is improving DAO dialogue. And, and I'll just, again, dig into the first one here. I'm not going to read the whole thread, but in terms of providing self-help learning, what the next tweet says is a DAO needs to provide a document with vision and mission, infos about the DAO's products and services, cheat sheets for everyday tasks and processes, recruitment and onboarding materials, and a project register and notes. So this is uh, the type of information you'll get if you check out the whole tweet thread. As always, we'll put links to all these articles and tweets in the show notes. Um, actually, one thing that stood out to me this week as I was doing my research was there's a lot of advice about how to run DAOs. So a lot of people were tweeting or publishing about like, here's my mental model, here's a, here's a, a system you can use or a structure you can use, or here's the three or five or 10 most important things for DAOs, which I think is awesome. I don't usually see quite so much volume in that regard. Um, and uh, this, this tweet was a good example. Um, what stood out to you, Eric, about this tweet? Just because it's a DAO doesn't mean that the lessons learned from the traditional workspace uh, don't apply. Right, people are people. If you go work somewhere and it's sink or swim, and they give you the keys to, I don't know, a, a, a dumpster, you've never driven one before, right? They don't tell you anything, and you, you, you don't even, you can't find the battery, you can't turn it on, so the dumpster never moves, or what, right? The sink or swim, it doesn't work in the real world, and it doesn't work in DAOs either. And so uh, the idea that uh, people would, DAOs are already manifestly different than what people have already experienced. So, in the real, in the in 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 the traditional, you know, managerial or workspace, people need to be oriented to where they're coming to work or what they're where they're coming to contribute value. And there's no different in DAOs. And and DAOs have the added issue that they're technologically complex. You there's a tight learning curve, right? You have to learn to use all these tools. You know, it may not seem, uh, you know, so obvious, but, you know, most people don't know how to use all the features in their iPhone. So now introduce them to uh, a Discord server and ask them, you know, how to, they can't figure out, you know, how to join a meeting, how to have a live session, how to stream, how the audio connects, right? So, so there's all these impediments. So onboarding, 
most DAOs that are still around and still chugging away that have the resources or the willingness to survey and look back and ask, and Bankless DAO is one of them. I was one of the governance solutions engineers that commissioned the survey across Bankless DAO. And one of the number one feedback items was onboarding. So Bankless DAO already had onboarding and already had quests. And in addition, it already had onboarding for the um, guilds that you're in. And yet the feedback was it wasn't enough, right? But people are being thrown in the water. And so what ends up happening is they either lurk for three or four months and don't do anything before they begin to join, like become active, or they might just exit. And so, you know, it's got to be welcoming. It's got to be not so hard that it's, you know, not achievable and for people to stick. So that that's the big one. Fairness and understanding how to do things, right? It's the same thing. You get a job at some company and you want to know where to get the stapler from. You know, where do I get the stapler? Right. Like, I don't know how to get a stapler. You know, I have to put a requisition form. Like, like, what is it? So, yeah, people need clear pathways. There's not there's a lot of experimentation going on. I do know that at Bankless, they just introduced the Constitution in the sense of one of the discoveries after a year was that if you don't have a history um, like, like historical, what happened matters to create culture in your organization. And. Right now, it's documentation because that's the easiest medium, but it doesn't have to be documentation. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. Love it. Awesome. Uh, and Bankless is a great example of a DAO uh, for people to check out. And uh, that governance solutions engineer, GSE role, I thought was such an awesome invention uh, in the first place. Um, and when I was doing my DAO consulting business, I was planning on hiring GSEs, you know, governance solutions engineers, um, based off of the bankless job description to help my clients um, before I ended up starting this company, MyDAO, instead. All right. Next article is also from Bankless HQ. It's from a newsletter called uh, Metaversal. So you can find it at metaversal.banklesshq.com. Uh, it's a newsletter. And the headline is The Bend Dow Bank Run uh, Bend Dow's Credit Crunch Explained. So this is an interesting uh, story about an organization called Bend Dow, which runs a protocol that's used for people to borrow against their NFTs. So let's say you have a board ape worth 100 ETH, so $100,000, which a lot of them actually are or more, and you want to borrow against it. Um, this Dow created a product that makes that possible. And the way they programmed the product or the protocol was that you can borrow up to 95% of the floor value of the NFT that you put up as collateral. So if you put up a, a board ape worth 100 ETH, then you could borrow 95 actual ETH um, against it and they would keep uh, your uh, NFT. And uh, if you ended up uh, not being able to pay interest or repay the loan, they would uh, keep the ape. Now, uh, in retrospect, this seems crazy because the assumption that you're making if you uh, create that protocol is that these NFTs won't fall by more than 5% in value below the, the floor price. Um, and of course, over the past several months, you know, these NFTs fell by, I don't know, 50% or more, just like um, the rest of the crypto um, ecosystem. And so you ended up with a lot of loans where you had someone who had borrowed, let's say, $100,000 but now the collateral was worth only $50,000. And in that situation, any rational actor would not even pay back their loan, right? If their option was keep the 100, you know, 95 ETH 
or keep the thing worth 50 ETH, um, you're going to keep the 95 ETH. And so what happened was this whole system uh, ran out of money. So there was no more liquidity in the pool um, to uh, make new loans. And uh, so the DAO had to come in and change its policies uh, to increase the collateral requirement and do more liquidations on assets that were already in the system. Um, and I, I think this is as much as it's about a DAO because it's a DAO that runs the protocol. I mean, this is about DeFi and the fact that even if you have a decentralized protocol, it doesn't mean the rules can never change. Um, but what's nice is that a DAO had to decide. It wasn't some central management team or a Federal Reserve you know, chairman who came in and said, hey, we're going to change the interest rate. You know, no one else gets to say. At least it was a DAO that had to vote on making the change to the protocol that increased the collateral requirements and increased the liquidations and um, brought the protocol back to, to solvency. And, and the protocol is now operating fine. Now, anything to react to this one, Eric? It's refreshing to see when um, what I call self-regulation, self-management, you know, proves itself out. And in this case, it has a positive outcome. I, I don't think the focus should be so much on the outcomes, should be on, on the process. And, and, and here, a process was able to respond in a timely way to new information, right? Uh, and based on that new information, they're able to arrive at a decision, you know, and within a, 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 a time space that's good enough uh, to to achieve the outcome they're looking for, basically. So it's kudos, kudos for the DAO. Yeah, awesome. All right. Um, turning to the next story, uh, this is again a tweet. Uh, this tweet is from Sam. Kazemian, at Sam, at Sam Kazemian. And the tweet is, I can't stand to not speak up about this Faye protocol situation. Please read this thread for one of the most egregious DAO slash DeFi situations I've ever seen. There is CeFi drama stuff, but this is a new low for DeFi. I'll read the next tweet. Um, well, first, let me give some context. So uh, what's going on here uh, is there were two DAOs, each of which uh, ran a protocol that involved uh, DeFi and treasury management uh, related tokens. Uh, one was called Fay Protocol and one was called Rari Capital. And the two DAOs voted to merge, uh, combining uh, their tokens into one new token. And then after the merger, there was a hack. So the one of the two protocols got hacked and lost uh, most or all of its money. And initially, the other protocol, or the whole system, I should say, because they had merged, voted to use all of their remaining money to make the people who lost money in the hack whole, basically give them back all their money. And they voted, the vote passed. Everyone was really excited about this. They did a press release. Fast forward a few months, uh, and of course, the crypto crash happened, which is, is going to affect a lot of DAOs, and you have less money than you think you did. Um, but what's amazing here was the leadership team came out and said, or some group of people in the DAO came out and said, you know what, um, things have changed. We're going to ignore that vote that happened before. And we're going to do a new vote in this new environment to see if we should pay back all the people who lost their money and make them whole. And this time around, uh, the vote failed and they decided not to repay all the people who had lost their money. 
So to me, the thing that stands out the most here that I think is so interesting as it relates to DAOs is that you really do have a couple of different types of DAOs out there. You have DAOs where this is one model for looking at the world, right? One lens. There's a lot of DAOs where the people really are in charge. And if they vote to make something happen, either the smart contracts on the blockchain automatically execute it so that you can't just change your mind and say, well, okay, it passed, but we're not going to do it, right? Or you have a legal construct in place that says that people have to do what the community votes. And so whether the vote takes place by email or Twitter, or in this case, probably snapshot, which is off-chain cryptographic, you can legally oblige the people who actually hold the money, for example, in a multi-sig wallet to do what the DAO says they want to do. And so if everyone votes, they're going to give back the money, you have to give back the money unless there's a system for doing a revote that's been you know, um, uh, implemented ahead of time. Um, the other type of, so, so that's, so, so those are the two ways you can have a DAO that actually has to execute what people vote. But what happened in this situation is actually really common. And I want to warn people to watch out for is there's a lot of DAOs where a bunch of people get together and they say, okay, you five people, you guys hold all the money. Let's all go do something cool together and we'll have votes occasionally. And there's no legal contracts, there's no legal entity, there's no smart contract that says that the community's vote gets automatically executed. Instead, you're trusting this small group of multi-sig holders to do what the community says uh, they should do with, with absolutely no recourse whatsoever on the blockchain or in the legal sense. And that's actually how a lot of DAOs operate. Um, a lot of them are a multi-sig with a community with some kind of off-chain voting, and there's no explicit agreement in place. Um, and so that's something that I think, on one hand, it makes sense why a lot of DAOs have to start with the simpler approach of having a smaller group of people controlling the money and then just informally getting input from the rest of the community. That's much easier, faster to launch, um, straightforward. Um, but people should be aware of which of those types of organizations they're joining or contributing to if they're going to join a DAO. So Eric, uh, anything to weigh in on this one? Uh, two things. One is, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. Just remember that. But on the governance side, you know, when uh, uh, businesses or people or just groups of friends, they come to me uh, or whether they're companies and they say they want to do a protocol and they want to start a DAO. And the first question I ask them is they have all this money like to to hire the devs. And I say, have you like funded the governance position? And they say, no. Why? And I say, because it's the first position that needs to be funded. Right. So what you're talking about describing here is more about failure of governance or poor governance than rather, you know, that it may look like one or two people are just like running the show. But that's a function of what the system is. And if the system doesn't have, hasn't enunciated, for example, that once a vote happens, uh, you know, it should be actioned in two days, five days, 10 days, 30 days, you know, ever, then there's simply, nobody's breaking a rule when they don't do it, right? So, and the rule was a social contract. It emphasizes the importance of like uh, this, this onboarding, the guidebook, the orientation, how are decisions made where we work or where we live or where we contribute or where we leave our value behind? Like if we've loaned our assets, you know, we deposited them and gave custody of it to somebody else. We want to know how they make decisions, 
right? You'd want to know how that, how that works in the real world. Um, Very cool. All right. Next story is, again, a tweet. This one is from Atonolis, and there is a tweet thread uh, entitled, What are the most pressing issues faced by DAOs this year? Over the past couple of weeks, we analyzed the proposals of the top DAOs, Looking at voter participation, proposal categories, and how these have developed over time, we made observations about the issues DAOs are currently facing. From these observations, we deduced that the three most important areas of concern for DAOs are one, treasury management, two, protocol management, and three, voter participation. And uh, I actually chose this tweet thread because the voter participation data was really surprising to me. You know, you may have heard me say in the past that I don't think it's a problem when you have very low voter turnout on most issues. You know, the people who either know the most about the issue or most involved in the project that's being voted on or uh, otherwise are most appropriate to vote in any given situation will usually be the ones who vote and everyone else doesn't necessarily need to vote. And, you know, they have their vote if they eventually need to use it because there's some major issue that comes up that affects the whole DAO. But otherwise, it's fine if 5% or 10% of people are voting. What surprised me about this data was that the average participation rate for these DAOs is well under 1% of the members voting on the average proposal, 0.64%. Now, these are very large DAOs that they looked at, things like MoonDAO and Gnosis and Gitcoin. Uh, Ave, Balancer, etc. Um, so it could be that this data doesn't apply the same way to smaller DAOs. I don't know. But uh, you know, the highest average participation rate for any of these top DAOs was MoonDAO at 2.88%. So I still, you know, maybe the principles I shared before still apply, but I was just kind of shocked to see how low these numbers really are. So curious, Eric, if you had a similar reaction or what you would highlight from this tweet thread. All data is skewed. So, for example, we don't know how many decisions have been pushed down and out to the edges that are just made locally. When we talk about uh, dismantling a hierarchy, you don't need to go to a manager to go to a manager to get an approval. One way this is done in DAOs is they're just pushing those decisions out to the people who are doing it on the perimeter of the edge. So that decision never escalates in the first place. So we don't know how many decisions have not escalated in the first place, right? That, that's one, at least the data doesn't tell us that. The next thing I would stress is that, I don't know about those particular protocols because DAOs, they're, they're, they're quite large, but um, in many smaller DAOs and medium-sized voter fatigue is usually the result of the failure to articulate what needs to be escalated and what doesn't. So again, which decisions can be pushed down, you know, can just be made amongst a group of uh, 10 people or 20 people and whatever they're doing doesn't need to float all the way up to the top. That's something else to consider. And the third thing is, what does it matter? I, I really don't think it matters, right? So nobody cares when 31% of the population votes for a national leader and that, you know, the other 69% didn't. They go along with it. I would say there's no difference between three and 30 because it's, it's way less than the majority. Right. And so what, 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 to me, what that signals is a lot of people are, are perfectly, they're comfortable and they just say, and they're also not available asynchronously all the time to be present and available to hop on votes, but they're comfortable enough 
to belong to that group and to have, if I borrow from the real world, you know, on a board of directors who has received the notice within the time frame, um, who is not present, is deemed to have assented to all the decisions made by the board if they were not present. That's pretty much the law in most jurisdictions of like the common law tradition. So the United States, Canada, Britain, uh, pretty much, you know, and th that's governance. So that, you know, uh, which means that it, if you didn't vote, you are deemed to have agreed to it because you had the opportunity. The issue here is about the opportunity. Did you have access to the information? And did you have the opportunity to protest or say something and have your voice heard? And, and this is where it differs from the corporate world. And, and so I don't think it really matters. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I really don't. I don't think it matters if it's 3%, 5%, 1%. You know, it would be bad if it was only three votes. Yeah, that would, <laughs> yeah. You know, it would be bad if it was 15 votes, right? Mm. But like some of these DAOs have like 100,000 people in them, right? Yeah. So if they say 3,000, 3%, uh, I forget. I think Moondow has 25,000 people in it. So, um, you know, 3% of that is still almost a thousand votes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So it's not like a CEO and like three, a C-suite of six people. Yeah. Who are just going. Good point. It's still way more decentralized than a traditional decision in a traditional company, um, for one thing. Oh yeah. Because where everybody got the information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so CC, we're, we're circling back to this asymmetric information thing. Yeah. As long as the information is out there and the, the more we push into the Dow conversation and phase two, phase three, like the maturity, the more it's becoming more central to my logic every day, which mm -hmm. is all about uh, symmetrical information. And once you have that, you're immunized from all sorts of problems. Yeah, makes sense. And it's, it's about availability of the information, right? It's not like you need everyone to always read everything, but as long as they could, if they wanted to, then would you consider that symmetric information? Yeah, access and they know where to find it yeah. and they have opportunity, yeah. right? And so whether that's pushed to you or whether it's just posted and you have to go look or, you know, I don't have the magic answer for that, but I would just say that there's a, 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 a group of criteria that it, like if something was posted and then there was notices and then it was there for long enough and then, you know, there's a reasonableness element to that. And once it's there, you had access, you had opportunity, you know, and therefore uh, it's a completely different. The fact that you voted or you didn't vote doesn't really mean anything. Yep. Awesome. All right. Last article for today uh, is from Coindesk and the headline is. U.S. Tribal Nation Economic Zone publishes draft rules for DAOs. The Catawba Digital Economic Zone proposes allowing DAOs to be organized as unincorporated nonprofits or limited liability companies. This is a economic zone backed by the Catawba Indian Nation in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Um, this one stood out to me because, of course, this is in some ways similar to the work that I do at my DAO, where we have the Marshall Islands um, legislation allowing for DAOs to register as limited liability companies there. And there's only about six jurisdictions in the world that have done something like that so far. So I was really interested to see that this economic zone related to this uh, Indian nation is trying to do something similar. Um, now, I 
personally had never heard of, you know, Native American communities in the United States doing anything like this. I had always thought it was something that is either going to be done by a state or by some other uh, nation state in the world. Um, so really interesting to think that there may be even more jurisdictions where something like this could um, could happen. So I'm curious, Eric, uh, especially, I guess, as a lawyer, not that any of this is legal advice because every situation is different, but what's your reaction to this? Is this something that could be just as viable as a nation state or is there an, any any red flags that go up for you? Okay, the, 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 there's actually quite quite a bit to unpack there. Um, without uh, going too deeply into it, Aboriginal law is uh, a whole area expertise on its own, and I'm not an expert in it, but I will say that in North America, whether it's the United States or Canada, most Indigenous people, they don't all have what I'll call the same deals. They all have different treaties that happen at different times, and so there's a level of self-autonomy. And depending where they live, they may have more self-autonomy or less self-autonomy, you know, almost like a, an independent state within a state. And so that's, uh, that, that's a feature of, you know, indigenous rights from co colonization, you know. So uh, interesting that they're doing that. I, I think what happens is whenever you have a, a single jurisdiction, right, uh, that comes out with a new law or structure that may not be recognized anywhere else, there's just some uncertainty. So I would just say that, like you said, it's not legal advice, but if I lived there, I could rely on that law because the law is made in the same place where the court is and the court has to uphold that law. But DAOs, by very nature, are global. This is the same issue, by the way, with the Wyoming and, you know, uh, Vermont, and, which is there's a lot of uncertainty, like if you live somewhere else, right? So because DAOs, by nature, are global and they have people from all over and they tend to attract and mass talent uh, from many different jurisdictions. And the issue becomes in law, if there's going to be a bun fight, right, it's either where I live, where you live, or where the incident occurred, right? And so, and if the Dow legislation is neither of those places, people will lean on to their advantage what the law is where I live. And, uh, you know, without being too specific, I know, for example, in California has all sorts of special laws they exercise all the time that are different than some other states, right? And so, um, and it only need, usually for anywhere, it just requires a nexus, they call it, like so, a nexus test. So, you know, if I live in province in Canada, then I can go to court in Canada in that province and claim that the incident occurred there. Usually in law, you go to where the assets are, because if you win, you usually want some type of asset. So, but so that it remains sort of a bit of the, you know, it's interesting, it's pioneering, it's uh, nice to see more forward thinking and more attempts. If I was going to speculate, it's going to end up being like LLC law, which is originally was not recognized. It was a long battle and it wasn't until sort of big money started wanting to do LLCs that, uh, uh, eventually it became recognized by foreign courts, they call it. But a foreign court is just a court in a different state. 
and 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 so the more it happens the better off we'll all be and uh the more it ha- but but that's my immediate thought was just is there's a lot of uncertainty you know so you know if you have people from all over from different states in the US from Australia Canada who are signed up to a DAO in that in that place it it may be difficult for them to lean on it yeah Yep. Right. Makes sense. Reminds me of uh, the network state, which is this concept that's being talked about that perhaps blockchains either are or will enable future states that are made up not of people who all live in the same geography, but people from all over the world that want to form this new type of state together. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges is if you look at the monopoly of violence that geographic states have. Right. If I live in Massachusetts, then I am subject to the rules that the Massachusetts police or the U.S. National Guard are going to enforce upon me. And if they choose to enforce the laws of the United States or Massachusetts on me, it doesn't matter what other network states I, I want to belong to. They're going to come force me to do whatever they want to force me to do. Um, so it seems like that reality still, uh, to some extent, applies to the world of DAOs as well. Ah, it's a good observation. Yeah, nobody from the network stake is going to come and defend your yeah, house. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe oh, one yeah. day. Oh, yeah. um, all right. Awesome. Cyber defense. Hey, we're, we are exploring a whole book here. Yeah, well, yeah. You know what? A good point about cyber. So like that's kind of then the next point you can make in, in this chain of arguments is, well, if one day cyber attacks and cyber defense are just as important and impactful as let's say a nuclear attack let's say we really get to a point where our lives are so digital that if you can fuck with my wallet right and or my metaverse property that you can ruin my life completely then suddenly cyber defense and cyber attack have a power that rivals that of conventional weapons and so in that world maybe a network state actually can go up against the Massachusetts state police, because if the police try to you know, come at me with their guns, we're going to go after their brain implants and they don't want that. Right. So if that's the world we're moving towards, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's how the network state ends up competing with conventional violence. I was thinking about like instant surgical strike, you know, like mm-hmm. um, they would defend a person uh, from forms of violence. Yeah, I think we're a long way yeah. off, but uh, drones but maybe. It's an interesting drones concept. Drones or, or nanobots. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, that does it for the Just Dow at News Report. And now turning to the featured guest interview with Eric. So we've already been talking a lot about a lot of cool stuff, um, but let's take a step back. And would you please tell us how did you first get into Web3 and DAOs in the first place? I was a hobbyist, crypto, like technical tinkerer. So first I tried to build an email server. It was too hard. Uh, Then I watched a video about Ethereum. Uh, I knew about Bitcoin. I tried to build an Ethereum miner in my basement um, just as a pastime. Then I started trading crypto. Uh, The next thing, it's a typical path. And then the next thing I was like trading swaps in Asia overnight on the weekend thing wake all night and then um then i decided i didn't want to do that uh, anymore either and then um along came DAOs. uh it was at first it was like a more of a reading thing for myself i'm interested in governance i've always been uh and uh and then i started participating 
and I got involved in Bankless DAO first. And what ended up happening is I ended up in a lot of discussions where it sounded like I was the only person that had the answer. So a lot of people had a lot of legal questions. I could see there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, FUD and hype and uh, misinformation that circulates or misguidance, you know, that's rampant uh, through DAOs. And so uh, bit by bit, I began to assume, and, uh, and DAOs are a lot about like seizing the opportunity before you, like uh, nobody, everybody looks like, who's going to do this? You say, well, I'll do it. And, uh, and then I just, you know, got deeper and deeper, both in governance. And then in my law practice, I began to shift, you know, because I like interesting things. And so I took on a few DAO cases and crypto cases. And then next thing you know, I had no time or room for anything else. And uh, that's where I am today. Uh, Full-time private practice crypto and uh, also I don't want to say full-time contributor, but uh, a significant contributor to several DAOs. So what is it that allows you to have answers where no one else can seem to come up with an answer? And, and I'm thinking, especially, Eric, you often have a lot of awesome analogies. I wonder if you could share some of, some of how you think about those with us. Yeah, um, I think uh, maybe uh, I have a background in aviation. And um, before I was a lawyer, and so what I often describe as actual risk, right? So, you know, the likelihood, the remoteness of something happening, um, and also what I call operationally actionable information is, is all stuff that, like, I, I was consumed with before I became a lawyer. And for the most part, the answer was always to the lawyers was, thank you, your opinion is welcome but it's only one part of the whole equation right before we ignored it and did something. Right. And so, because they don't run the show and then I became a lawyer. Uh, and, and, and that sort of uh, drives my thinking sometimes. So, you know, I've, 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 I tend not to tweet or challenge people in the open, but on calls, I'll ask them, I'll hear, Oh, the risk of this is that, you know, and I'll say, put my hand up and I'll say, could you, could you, could you please elaborate on that? What is that risk? And then, then they'll text me and they'll say, bro, you're blowing my, you know, the lawyer is <laughs> angry at me because they, you know, they said that something's risky. And then I said, well, what, what is the risk? Like, can you, can you actually explain it? And, you know, some people can, it's not that anybody, nobody can't. The thing about in crypto and in DAOs is that there is, First of all, you have to have the time. There's a big learning curve. And so you're either born into it, which means you're very young because you had the time, but then you lack the knowledge of like how things get executed or you have to be semi-retired and you have to be into crypto, crypto native in order to really grasp, you know, the issues at hand, especially the regulatory ones, whether they're sanctions or securities or you know, it's not just fluff and what matters and what doesn't matter. And so you need a lot of time. And I would just say that most lawyers, the majority of them, uh, are busy. They have a full pipeline. They have a set play. I only do this type of law. Uh, I have a check, a playbook, the organization I work in, 
you know, is very top down. And, you know, Eric says this, the person below him says that, and the person below him or her, you know, says this or that. And that's how it works. We have a risk model that doesn't accept risky projects. We have, right. And so that excludes right away, like 90% of all those, like right out of the gate. And you may have found with MyDAO that uh, if you can find a crypto lawyer, because they are out there, they're busy, right? And so if, you know, and if you only have like a small thing, you'd think, well, it wouldn't be very hard. Uh, what you discover is they, they answer you with stuff like, I'll get to you in six weeks, right? Like, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so it's not that I would say that I'm so different. I, I would say that I belong to a group within the law community that is uh, more fluent in what the challenges are, where the friction points are. And it's also a mix. If you practice law, it usually doesn't transborder, right? Unless you're in maritime law, international insurance, there's very few things, treaty law, right? Unless you practice in that, which again, which is a very narrow group of very few people, unless, and, and, you rarely have to do deal with that, right? People uh, from all over in different places with different concerns and different governments, different projects, different rules. So it's very international, very transborder. And so you also have to be uh, either willing to learn or you already have to be sort of, you, you needed to understand that a little bit. My background was aviation, you know, it was naval aviation going around the world you know i was in the military for a couple of decades doing all that kind of stuff implementing implementing those international rules and so i've been at the table of those conversations where you know nobody can decide what's going on doesn't matter how high or level it came from because there was no law in that place and um i would just say that uh those things have helped me in crypto um and and the other thing is passion I like it. I like the idea about uh, people being uh, f having freedom of conscience, you know, to make choices of their own. Um, I I personally uh, often some of my rhetoric is colored with like I don't need you know Big Brother to tell me what to do. Uh, that kind of is something that's ingrained in me, you know, like uh, that there's, there's a bit of self-autonomy that people need to be responsible for. And I think this whole movement, uh, you know, is, is in that direction. So I like being part of it. Analogies. Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, you're probably thinking about the coat check and the, the airline points or if I've spoken to you about them before. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm Canadian. So when you take your wife to a fancy restaurant in the winter, you know, they bring their shoes in a little bag and they wear boots. And when you get to the restaurant, there's a coat check. They take the coat. They take, you know, the shoes. You know, you swap your footwear. And then, you know, sometimes you have to pay for it. So, and then you buy a token. And, right, so whichever way you want to we'll call it, you know, you do the swap. And uh, then you get to use the token for a while while they hold your uh, you know, your coat and your boots in the coat check, and then you eat dinner and eventually you come back, you give the token back, you get your stuff back, and then you may even leave a tip, right? So there's a bit of, there's a financial transaction, there's an economic interest, uh, there's a swap, there's a token, uh, and there's definitely not a security anywhere there.
right? Right. So, so every day we 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 do stuff, uh, and so there's no investment contract when I deposit my, you know, shoes at the coat check. So I, I like to rely on. I think often when I'm in these conversations, and I just think of these real examples. Then I also thought about very early on. I started using the airline points example, right? So we have real. So not everything in DAOs and crypto is new. In fact, a lot of it has been around for a long time, and we have everyday examples. The first example is the unincorporated association. The unincorporated association is the most com common form of organization in the world. I know for a fact it is in Canada, and I'm almost positive in the United States. The most common form. There is more unincorporated associations than there are businesses, mm. companies. And that's because anything, any group of people it is by default, if they're doing something together, it's an unincorporated organization, right? Yeah. Damp Club, Homeowners Association, uh, you name it, uh, you know, sports. Um, and so unincorporated associations have existed for a long time. Uh, they're not going anywhere. In fact, they've existed since before companies. And so the fact that you're an unincorporated, so if you want to claim your DAO is an unincorporated, uh, it, it's not a mystery. It exists. Um, and in some places, it's more recognized than others. The, the issue really tends to be whether you want to sue or be sued, right? And the naysayers will say, the disadvantage is that you can't be sued. And I'd be like, I've never seen that as an advantage before. Recently, I was trying to enter into a contract on behalf of a DAO uh, with a company, and they wanted to, well, they, want, they wanted us to enter into a contract. And I said to them, I said, do you see yourself suing, like resorting to courts? Like, do you see this? It was for something very simple. If there's and, a breach. Uh, and they said, absolutely not. Yeah. We're like, never. We're like pro crypto. We're not ever going to go to court for a judgment. And I said, so then why do you want a contract? The barrier is you want a legal entity counterparty, but you're telling me you never want to go to court. So why? And they're like, well, uh, I don't know. Our lawyers told us that. And I said, okay. I said, we can have agreements other ways. We can have attestations. We can both attest that we believe, you know, we, 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 we can have a service level agreement, a memorandum of understanding, all these other forms of agreement that basically set out what our promises are, but they don't give us standing in a court. And all these things exist already, right? Why do associations enter into a service level agreement or a memorandum of understanding? Well, because they don't want to enter into a contract. So these things do exist. The tools are there. They're just not used that commonly. Um, and I also have a background in not-for-profit. I've sat on a number of boards as the chair of athletic associate. So all this not, so that you have this merge of sort of these not-for-profit that need these tools. The airline points is a good one. Um, when I, you know, hear about staking and taxes and I think about how I've never been taxed. I'm a frequent flyer. I'm in Dubai. I'm in my hotel room here. I get enough tickets to fly my whole family around like at least twice a year. Right. And so enough points. And when they every time they send me something, they, they send me an email. Hey, hurry now. Register for this special bonus, because if you book a trip during the next three weeks, you'll get extra points. Right. So right away, so I get registration bonus. Then I get, if I fly enough, then they give me early 
early bonus for getting so many points early. So they just keep piling on the rewards, the rewards, the rewards, the rewards. In the end of the day, um, I'm not required to, and I believe no one in the U.S. is required to either, I believe. I'm not sure, but um, you pay taxes on any of that, right? But I receive airline rewards all the time, but I can buy an Apple iPod or an iPhone with them, right? And I can buy travel all around the world, and I don't have to pay any tax on on receiving that. And so that that was another area that there's a real-world analogy there. And most airlines, by the way, are worth about a fifth of what their loyalty points program is worth. So like the like many airlines are only worth four or five billion, but their loyalty points is worth 20 billion, 2025. Or their airline is the money loser, like the lesser airlines. Their airline actually is a money loser, but their loyalty points business is is the money maker. So we have examples of businesses that are out there that you know are analogs to the different activities that are going on that go on. Uh, in crypto and DeFi, I think that our biggest enemy is ourselves, the maximalism. Um, I can't tell you uh, with the uh, tornado cash sanctions, I've been on so many calls where I keep telling people that the word is provision. Stop paraphrasing the law, right? Like they say, oh, we can't do on the sanctions, you know, from tornado cash from last week when we were talking, you know, the, the rule uses the word provision, Right. It says, you know, you can't provision uh, goods or services. But I've been on so many calls in the last two weeks with DAOs, lawyers, um, node operators who are all paraphrasing the law. And then it has scope creep. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks that it applies to everything. And so we're, uh, people in this space are their own worst enemy by paraphrasing, you know, and taking uh, the law to their own hand, then you have this paranoia. I know for the whole first year I was in Bankless Dow, we had so many people quit because they were afraid of the IRS. You know, it's bottom line because they couldn't get a straight answer from anybody. Now, at least you have more accountants who are starting to come around. It's really interesting because no big firm accounting uh, is into crypto, but the little people are. They're seizing the opportunity. And uh, I love it. Well, and I'll, so I'll share a, another analogy or two that I've learned from you because I think they're awesome. In the case of a nonprofit DAO, so my DAO deals uh, so far primarily with nonprofit uh, DAOs, although that's changing soon. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, like I was being interviewed by ABC Australia the other day. And she was really pushing on me about a lot of the things that you often hear as criticisms of crypto and DAOs. And one of the things was like, how can you call this a nonprofit when people are making money on real estate and this and that? And so I used your analogy. I said, you know, think about like a yacht club. A yacht club is almost yep. always going to be a nonprofit organization, but the yachts that pull in and out are worth millions and millions of dollars. And those yachts can rise in value. Those yachts can fall in value. No one is complaining about the yacht club being a nonprofit. That's just it's just a structure that makes sense. Or sports leagues is another one you've told me about, you know, the, the major league sports leagues that make tons of money and a lot of people make money off them. Those are nonprofit organizations. And, and it's for good reason. The sports teams often are maybe usually are for profits and are making a lot of money. The media is making a lot of money. Everyone's making a lot of money off of this. That doesn't mean you can't have a nonprofit as part of the system. Um, so those are two of my favorite analogies I've learned from you as well. 
Oh yeah, yeah. There's another good one, which is um, in Canada we have something called Interact, which is the the network for when you use the automatic teller machines. And Interact, until three years ago, was a not-for-profit. So you, every time you stick your card in the machine and it charges you a 50 cent fee to use the network, uh, Interact for 20 years. Uh, and they invented this whole, like, you know, that, that, that's how the money was, was charging a fee. And uh, it was a not-for-profit. And the only reason it actually uh, migrated is because it merged with something else. And uh, otherwise, it would still be a not-for-profit, you know. And, um, and so a not-for-profit simply means that the owners don't take the profits, basically. And so as long as the owners are, who do nothing, who are sitting around passively with their hands on their head, suntanning, right? As long as they are not taking the profits for themselves, you have a not-for-profit, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Cool. And so there's a, there's a place where a lot of people don't understand that uh, I'm not going to out the CEO of the American Red Cross on his salary. That's a not-for-profit. It's a charity, actually. And I'll just say it's, uh, I think it's over a million dollars, right? So it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to get paid. doesn't mean that you're not allowed to work. doesn't mean you're not allowed to produce value. What it means is you're not allowed to distribute and harvest those profits to the beneficial owners. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Cool. All right. We've been uh, covering a lot of awesome stuff. I want to turn to some of the questions we ask all of our guests um, about uh, different uh, challenges and advice uh, that you have for DAO, challenges you've seen DAOs face and advice you have for them. So let me ask you, uh, what is the number one piece of advice that you have for people starting DAOs today? Yeah. So we touched on this earlier because just the coincidence of the articles, onboarding. If you don't have an onboarding process, uh, it's not going to work out well, right? It doesn't, like, especially in the beginning, like three or four or five, ten people have all the ideas in their head. It's just not obvious. Um, onboarding is the big deterrent. I see that in my family. I've encouraged other people to join DAOs, and then they're kind of like, eh. You know, they, 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 they fizzle out because they're onboarding. They don't know what, they don't know what to do. They, they can't figure it out. Onboarding, um, if it's going to be uh, a protocol DAO, of uh, some type, which means it's probably DeFi. They need a funded position for the governance community manager of some type. Because these are the DAOs that are not going to be social DAOs. Uh, they're going to be financial in some way or form, which means there's going to be a lot of token holders. And um, that information needs to be marshaled in the process needs to be run by someone because there's so many people. Yeah. Those are the two real big ones that like smoke from pay from the page. Poof. Like if you don't have yeah. that, uh, you're going to run into problems right away. Yeah. And I think when I think about onboarding, I mean, I, I think about in a traditional company, um, your first day at the company, let's say you have an office, you're surrounded by other people who can help you. Right. So if you're confused, you'll just be like, excuse me, can you help me find my desk? Can you help me find my, you know, where do I get my computer? What am I supposed to do? And it can just happen organically, even in a company that's operating fully remotely, at least you have like a Slack where everyone's available 24 seven, you know, who's in charge. Cause there's someone in charge. You have a manager, you can ask them, Hey, what am I supposed to do? But in, in DAOs often it's a discord server. Um, no one is necessarily in charge. And so, 
like you said, I mean, if there's no onboarding process that's documented and clear, you know, people will come in and then they'll they'll just leave and go somewhere else. I guess that's the other key is that most DAOs are open in terms of you can join and you can leave whenever you want. Um, and so you're, it's not like a company where you're locked up into a, an employment contract and therefore you're going to figure it out. If you can't figure it out, you'll just leave. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, maybe it doesn't have to be written down. It could be oral, right? But, you know, that would be like a welcome call that then ex explains that, I don't know, this part of the server is where you ask your questions. Something as simple as that, right? It's just this orientation, onboarding, you know, mentoring, not so much. but And then having people select and jump into what they want. Uh, you know, there's a shop, shopping list. Here's 10 things that we do. Here's five things that we do. Which one do you want to be part of, right? And then even if they're interested, but, oh, tokenomics, I don't know anything about that. Sign up for tokenomics. Go to the tokenomics meeting. Start to learn about tokenomics, you know, whatever it is. Because it's both a place for expertise, but also learning. Everybody who's there wasn't born a DAO expert. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, all of us in the DAO space are, are pretty new to the DAO space because DAOs are new. Um, so we're all learning as we go. Um, any favorite tools you've come across or new tools that you're excited about that people could check out? Tools for running DAOs? I know Harmony was building some, but I think that came to an end. Polygon has come out with Polygon ID, which is like a ZK rollup. So the way that works is off-chain, you validate yourself. So I validate myself as I'm uh, 18 years old and I'm Canadian. And then I get a proof that says that. And then that proof goes on-chain. And every time I want to do something, I present that as my ID. Nothing more. Because most things don't require anything else so that I ask me of adult age and maybe what country I'm from. And so this is the pilot project they're doing is, is just these two things. But in theory, you could have an endless amount of claims, they call them, right? And so uh, it's interesting. And under that type of uh, ID, it would uh, enable one, one wallet, one voting, right? So it get, eliminates uh, plutocratic voting, which is whoever has more tokens has a heavier influence. They, that was a soft rollout like in June. I think that uh, it's just being piloted right now, but uh, it has some promise. I, they're also building a tool. I know that it's like a skin. It's also had a soft launch called Grail, which is going to aggregate all these bad tools, right? So <laughs> we have, you know, discourse forums. We have Discord servers. We have Telegram. We have, there's a couple of other products out there, platforms. And uh, basically, you have to be present in all of them if you're going to be following the DAO, wherever you are. And it's difficult to be present in all of them all of the time or asynchronously. It's even more difficult to be present in all of them uh, if you're involved in more than one DAO. And so um, you're starting to see what I call, I'll just call it aggregation tools. They're coming out uh, where you only have to sit at one interface and it's actually pulling that information. The thing with the Polygon is that it's going to interact with the, the ID wallet. And I only mention it because they're building, it's a company that's building DAO tooling in the hope that DAOs will migrate to their ecosystem, right? So most tools so far 
have been built by DAOs themselves, uh, if there has been any other than the pre-existing ones, they usually have not been very composable, right? So they kind of standalone. They have a standalone smart contract. Then you have an off-chain thing like Snapshot, right? You have all these tools and they're all in these little silos. And so we're just going to enter the first, you know, the steps of composability where the tools can kind of interact with each other. And so those are the new tools that I'm aware of. Uh, reputation is another one. There's a bunch of uh, different initiatives working on reputation and how that might, you know, figure into voting. And there's a couple of protocols, a couple of smart contracts, a couple of people out there working on that, uh, which is an interesting development. Um, but other than that, I have no favorite tool. I think the tools are all bad. They're just like the lesser, <laughs> you know, they were all, um, they were used, they've just been adapted for a purpose they weren't designed for. And, uh, and so I think if we have a call one year from now, there's going to be better tools. Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, in your Polygon ID example, you mentioned that you're an 18 year old lawyer from Canada. I just want to make sure everyone knows that you're not actually 18. So if they were worried <laughs> about all this, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All no, great... <laughs> I, I, yeah, or maybe I misspoke. It's just, it says that I'm over 18, right? Oh, okay. So it, okay. Just confirms, it just confirms that I'm an okay. adult. I'm a, uh, 18 cool. years. It doesn't have to, because when you think about like KYC, they ask you all these questions that, that they only want the information to sell your data, right? So you don't actually need to know my birthday. You just have to know that I'm a, a legal adult yeah, for like 99% yeah. of non-security related things, right? Makes sense. And yeah. so and so that's where the, the sort of ID, ZK rollups come into play. I could see the application of that or other projects people are working on. Uh, when you think about it, when you own your own data, Right. It's a common topic. It's a common mm -hmm. promise. We're, we're not there yet. But, you know, if I own the only wallet that has my name, address and, you know, details in it, there's only one. And then you're a business and you say, I don't know, you're Google and you say, hey, I want to look in your wallet. And I say, OK, you can see my, I'm over 18. I'm from Canada for free. But if you want to know, like, how old I am, how many, you know, all the other details, you have to pay me. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Or just right? I'm not telling um, you. Yeah. Or, but, 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 the, yeah. but the option is mine because I control it. Right. Yeah. Or for example, that like every time you go to a bank or a library, everybody has your day, you go to a hospital, everybody knows everything about you. So every one of those places is ready to be robbed, uh, you know, have their data stolen. But yeah. if you walk around with it and when you show up, you say, well, I'll let you look into it. And there you go. I prove it. So you only need to hold it in one place. Awesome. Uh, any favorite DAOs you'd recommend people check out? Um, I think Bankless is a given, um, and I would agree that people should check it out. Any others? Yeah, Bankless is a great introduction. Um, there's so many good DAOs out there. Moon DAO is a great DAO, but you know you got to be interested in outer space. There's so many good DAOs out there. Forefront's a DAO. Just depends what you're interested in. If you're, you know, you like writing, you like being with writers, you know, you can join the Forefront DAO. Journal DAO is full of journalists, right? So I would just, uh, but a good place to start. What happens is when you, when you, when you join the, um, I'll call them like uh, 
boomer DAOs or the original DAOs, like things like Bankless. <laughs> yeah. Yep. When a, people are starting new movements, they often come there to advertise, right? Hmm. They come there to recruit people like, hey, I'm starting this new project. Mm. And they, they, they post it there, they shill it. So if you're, you know, uh, interested, um, if you're interested in, in, in DeFi, uh, you know, Shapeshift DAO is a good one. But there's a lot of uh, good DAOs out there, and I wouldn't limit myself to that. Index Co-op. Cool. Those are great examples. Awesome. All right, Eric, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, where can people find you and your projects on the web and on social? So um, I'm Rotorless everywhere, like Rotorless at Hotmail, Rotorless on Twitter, Rotorless on Telegram, probably Rotorless in a few other places. So if you just randomly <laughs> write Rotorless, you'll probably find me. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't have a website. Uh, I don't need one. Too much work. And uh, <laughs> but, but you can also find me active in servers, in DAOs. I'm active in Bankless, Shapeshift. I guess the best way to find me online is either uh, through one of those handles or through the bankless now. Awesome. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at zero X thriller or my DAO DS M I D A O D S for my DAO uh, or my DAO.org. Um, please send me uh, feedback on the podcast. Leave me a review, uh, leave me a comment. And uh, again, Eric, uh, this has been just awesome. It's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me, Adam. Anytime. And uh, to the audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it. Just DAO it is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Just DAO it does not contain any legal or financial advice. My DAO also does not provide legal or financial advice, and nor does your host, yours truly.